0: Um, We're going to be in the book of Judges, chapter number 2 this morning. Judges, chapter number 2. Amen. Some of you, as you're turning there, some of you may have heard this message before. I I taught this as a Sunday school lesson and tried to keep it down in teaching gear. Uh, And many of you came and said, hey, next opportunity you get to preach that on Sunday morning. Uh, Preach that on Sunday morning. And I've been praying about it, and I believe this is where the Lord would have us this morning. Um, This book of Judges, chapter number two. Judges chapter number two. As you're turning there, know this. The book of Judges covers a 350-year transition for God's people. Up until this time, up until the book of Judges, uh, the people of Israel, God's chosen people, the Jews, always had a patriarch, a father figure, a leader. They always had somebody to lead them. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Aaron... And Joshua had brought them this far. But now as we settle into the book of Judges, understand this, that the judges were literally men and sometimes women of God who God would raise up to help nudge the people of Israel in the right direction. And later on in the book of Judges, towards the end of the book, there's a verse that says, there was, "...in those days there was no king in Israel, and every men, every man did that which was right." in his own eyes. There was no leader, there was no patriarch, there was no king. And it was God's intention to bring the people of Israel to the land that He had set aside for them, and it was God's intention for God to be their king for God to be their God and God to be their Father. But as the people of Israel began to wander and stray, uh, we quickly realize what we all realize this morning is that even though God wants to be our individual Lord over our life and our individual King over our life and our individual ruler of everything that we do according to His will, many times we start straying to the left and to the right and doing things we ought not do. The same thing happened uh, with the Jews. In short, the Jews learned many tough lessons in this book And one of them will be what we're looking at this morning. All right? So if you're in the book of Judges, chapter number 2, stand with me when you find it and let your eyes find verse number 8. Judges, chapter number 2, verse number 8. Amen. Let's read verse number 8. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being an hundred and ten years old. And they buried him in the border of his inheritance, in Timnatherez, in the Mount of Ephraim, on the north side of the hill Gash. And also that generation were gathered unto their fathers, and there arose another generation after them, which knew not the Lord, nor yet which the works He had done for Israel. Here we find the people of Israel that had watched the Red Sea part on both sides. Here we watched the people of Israel who had seen God's miracle after miracle in the wilderness. They watched the water flow forth from the rock. They watched the uh, well be turned pure. They watched Moses and Aaron do many wonderful works, and Joshua w- do many wonderful works and lead them in the area of making it to this promised land. But here we find upon the death of Joshua a little comma. Some of you have never been to church before and heard a preacher preach on a comma. But that's what we're going to look at this morning. Look back at verse number 10 with me. And also all that generation were gathered unto their fathers... And there arose another generation after them. Somebody say, comma, comma, which knew not the Lord. One generation no longer knew the Lord because of what took place at that comma. This morning, we're going to preach on this thought, killing the next generation. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for the lessons you taught your people even back in the book of Judges, so that we may learn from them, so that we are not doomed to repeat them. God, I pray this morning as I preach, God, that you fill me with your Holy Spirit. God, get me completely out of your way. God, let nothing I would do or I would say be in the way of what you would do or what you would say. God, I pray for this thy people, that they examine themselves before your word this morning, not the words of a preacher, not the ideologies of a religion, but by the literal word of their created Savior. God, I pray that you speak to your people this morning, and I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. One thing I did fail to mention, we need to pray for our pastor. Brother Dan is out of town. Um, he went out of town on a family trip, and as he is away, uh, his dear friend that helps run the mission board with him, Brother Jack, uh, is become very, very ill, and they've called hospice in the family. in. so our pastor's heart is hurting. He wants to be here with his dear friend as he makes his transition to glory, but he's unable to. So be in prayer for Brother Dan. Uh, also be in prayer for uh, brother Jack, the one who helps him run his mission board, um, and that family and all those. So I, I, de- I definitely didn't want to forget to mention our pastor this morning, pray that the Lord brings him safely back to us. Um, again, he's visiting some family out of town, uh, and it gave us the opportunity to have a Youth Sunday, so I'm always honored and privileged to have the opportunity to preach, um, especially to the best church in Rossville, Georgia. Somebody say amen. amen. Especially to the best church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Somebody say amen. amen. Especially to the best church in the whole wide world. Somebody say Amen. 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 So we zoom in here on the people of Israel, and we found that the, the followership, if you will, the, the leading of Joshua had now passed off the scene. We had the leadership of a mighty soldier in Joshua. We had the leadership of a mighty man in Moses. And we had the leadership of a mighty priest in Aaron. And those three men have now died and passed off the scene. As Israel makes their transition into the land of Israel. We know that Joshua had led, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. We know he came in there and, uh, in southern vernacular, he whooped some tail. Okay. They got some, them people out of there. They drove a majority of them out. And the land was equally divided amongst the 12 tribes of Israel. And they said, go, go take it, go manage it, go out there and take care of business. And remember God. He is your God. He is your king. You report directly to him. But here we find very quickly, even in the span of this little comma, that the next generation after them, the Bible very clearly says, knew not the Lord. So how could this happen? By introduction this morning, we're going to look at the beginning of chapter number 2. The beginning of chapter number 2. So go with me to chapter number 2. Look at verse number 1, and we're going to find a sobering reminder. A sobering reminder. Judges chapter 2 verse 1 says, And an angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I made you to go up out of Egypt. And have brought you unto the land, which I swear unto your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. God simply saying here through his angel to his people, do you not remember who it was that got you here? who it was that brought you out of the land of Egypt, that freed you from that bondage, that freed you from slavery, and now I've brought you to a land, I've enabled you to possess it, I've enabled you to inhabit it, I've enabled you to take it and make with it your own, as long as you're my people and I am your God. That sobering reminder uh, was a simple reminder before he gets to the solemn rebuke. Look at verse number 2. And ye shall make no league. Remember what I told you? Israel, and ye shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land. Ye shall throw down their altars, but ye have not obeyed my voice. Why? Have you done this? You see, what he's calling Israel out for, for right now is they would come into the land, and we're going to get into it in just a minute. And they didn't utterly drive out the inhabitants thereof. God told them, "You don't want a part of their uh, their wickedness. You don't want a part of their uh, little g gods that they worship. You don't want a part of their culture. You don't want a part of that those things are falls and traps and pitfalls. Get them out of there. Drive them out of there before you get into that land. Before you set up shop. Before you start raising your families and you start worshiping. Get." those people, out of there. And he's saying, why have you done this? Because you didn't. You didn't drive them all out. You're starting to have conversations with them. You're starting to become friends with the world around you. So there was a sobering reminder, a solemn rebuke, and thirdly, a snaring recompense. Look at verse number 3. Wherefore I also said, I will not drive them out from before you, but they shall be as thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare unto you. You see, children of Israel, God saying, hey, you thought you could play with it. You thought you could, you know, manage their ideologies and manage their truths and manage their politics and manage the things that they think are right and manage the thing. And you would be able to stick by the stuff. But what you're going to find out is they're going to be thorns to you. They're going to be snares to you. I don't know if any of you ever got caught in a bunch of thorns. It is no fun. All right? It is something that will stop you in your tracks. It is something that will keep you from progressing any further. It is something that will distance you from where you're trying to get to. And at a lot of times, thorns will keep you from going that direction at all whatsoever. Thorns will stop you in your tracks. They'll keep you from going down the path that you're intended to go down. And he said, if you have ignored me, this is what's going to happen. There are going to be as thorns, and they're going to be as snares. They're going to be traps and pitfalls. And lastly, a sincere recognition. Look at verse 4. And it came to pass... When the angel of the Lord spake these words unto all the children of Israel, then the people lifted up their voice and wept. This is good news. Verse number 5, And they called the name of that place Bochum, and they sacrificed there unto the Lord. So the people of God there at the passing of Joshua had just realized the mistake they made. They had just realized that they had failed to do what God charged them to do. They had failed to drive out the enemy. They had failed to expel those religions and expel those little G pagan gods and uh, expel those things that God told them to get out of there. And they realized and they repented. And it says here they wept and cried out to the Lord for repentance. And it says they built there an altar and sacrificed. And uh, they are now and their eyes in good standing with God. And in God's eyes, they were in good standing with Him. But what they failed to realize was that the consequences of those sins would still rear around to reap their ugly face. How many of you have ever known that even though you know you're forgiven for something, even though you know you've prayed and asked for forgiveness for a deed you've done or a thing you've done, God absolutely 100% saved by the blood forgives you for that sin. However, the consequences of that sin will return to find you. And that's what we we're going to look at this morning uh, in the uh, <coughs> book of Judges as we get further into our text. Killing the next generation happened right there at that comma. You see, there was a generation, if you haven't got it yet, that followed God, knew God, had just finished sacrificing to God, had just repented to God. And then there was a little comma, and there arose another generation after them which knew not God. So how could this happen? How in the world does this take place? How in the world? And that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to break it down verse by verse and see exactly what took place. Because today, right now in 2021, the church abroad has grown silent in many areas, just as Israel was. But this morning, I don't have the privilege and honor to preach to the global church. I don't have the privilege and honor to preach to every Baptist church in the whole world or every uh, Christian church in the whole world. I don't get the opportunity to preach to those people this morning. I get the opportunity to preach at Anchor of Hope Baptist Church. And while I know and I clearly understand that Anchor of Hope Baptist Church is full of people who love this next generation, who care about this next generation, who want to sacrifice for this next generation, I would be foolish to think that every individual truly understands the calling they have on their lives to care about the next generation. So I do understand, by and large, I'm in a church that would never intentionally kill the next generation. But there could be some mamas in here that are in danger of killing the next generation. There could be some daddies in here that are in danger of killing the next generation. There could be an age saint of God that is in danger of killing the next generation. There could be a a missionary or a preacher or fill in the blank here in this room today that even though you may not realize it right there where you're at, you're in danger of killing the next generation. So I want to preach for just a few moments on that thought. Killing the next generation. How did this happen? You turn on the news and you see these young people marching for the things they're marching for and you say, how did this happen? You go outside in the supermarket and you hear the words and the language and the the, the dress and the things that are going on in the world around us and you ask the question, how did this happen? The exact same way it happened here in the book of Judges. Number one, killing the the next generation happens when the church plays instead of purges. When the church plays instead of purges. For this section, we're going to go back to chapter number one. We're going to go back to chapter number one. You saying the church was playing preacher? Yep. Number one, they were playing politics, playing politics. Look at chapter one, verse 21. And the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites that inhibited Jerusalem, but the Jebusites dwelled with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem unto this day. Here we find the children of Israel making deals with those co- God has commanded separation from. You see, I understand we're in the Old Testament this morning. We're in the Old Testament, and in the Old Testament, God was literally telling the children of Israel to expel the people from their land. But in all honesty, what He was asking them to do is the same thing He's asking you and I to do right here in this day and age, is to be separated from them. We preached on Wednesday night in the youth group, and uh, we talked about when Jesus stood up and He said, Love thy neighbor as thyself. You and I are not called to live In this world, you and I are called to be neighbors to this world and love the neighbor and love your neighbors as yourself and and explain the gospel and expose the gospel to the people around you. And here we find the people of Israel not just being neighbors and neighboring countries with the people of this world. They were literally making deals with them. They were literally saying, you can dwell here. You can dwell there. You can hang out with us on this day. You can uh, do your practices over there. You can do your practice over the world. And simply they were making deals with those God had commanded separation from. And the church today is very much in guilt in doing this. We know that there's several things that this world has to offer that our churches by and large and our churches abroad have to offer us that we'll sometimes say, well, this isn't right according to God's Word, but everybody else is doing it. Everybody else is doing it at their church. Everybody else is allowing it to go on at their church, playing politics. And God called us to be Lights unto the world, not lovers of the world, didn't he? And a lot of times in churches, we make decisions and we execute things and we do things as leaders and as Christians and as people that are just regular members of Anchor of Hope, people serving in different ministries. Before we make a decision, rather than consulting and say, what does God say about this? What does the Bible say about this? We say, well, what would the world think, don't we? What What would they think? Sometimes, on an individual basis, we make decisions like that because we're guilty of playing instead of purging. I tell the teenagers all the time, we have game time out in the gym, but this is not a game. The Word of God is not a game. Christianity is not a game. Following Jesus is not a game. It's not something that we get to play. It's not something that we get to participate. It's something that God allows us by His grace, not flicking us off into eternity and allowing us to be part of His work and to be part of His ministry and be part of His kingdom. And He called people like you and called people like me to not play and not uh, enjoy the pleasures of the world on Monday and then enjoy the spirituality of a service like this on a Sunday. We are not to be playing we are to be purging, purging ourselves, purging <clears throat> our homes. If we're a daddy in this place, if we're a mama in this place, we've got a responsibility to watch and not let our kids play with things that they're supposed—they're not supposed to be playing with. How in the world could this comma come into play? And that generation be passed off the scene and not know God because the parents thought it was okay to let their kids play and let their kids play and let their kids play when they should have been purging, purging, purging the things out of those phones, the things out of those social medias, the things out of those uh, ball fields that they were being influenced by playing politics number two playing with power there were certain enemies that israel thought were just simply too powerful to conquer when joshua passed off the scene they would come up on a group of people you can read about it in chapter number one and they would look at him and go there's no way we can take them there's no way we can take them that battle is too great we'll just let them be we'll just let that group of people be now what god say drive them out I'll deliver all of them into your hand. I will go before thee. They watched the walls of an entire city of Jericho fall down, yet they lack the faith to fight certain battles. Don't we do that? Thank you, Lord, for your blessing on me. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done for my home, for my family. And we see something that needs to be done. We see a need like summer camp. We see a need like uh, spraying Roundup around the church. Thank you to those men who came these past couple of weeks and sprayed the weeds. Brother Dan will be so happy. And we... We see those type of needs we say, I can do that. And they say, well, we need somebody to do this. And you say, that's way too powerful. There's no way I could handle that. They were playing with power. They didn't realize just what God wanted to do for them. And there was a generation watching them that saw Christians, that saw God's children chicken out. That saw a group of mighty men get to the edge of the river and go, oh, there's no way we can take them. Can you imagine what that does to the next generation's perspective? They say, well, if your God can't beat them, why am I not on their team? Starting to make a little sense now? They started playing with power. They say, we're the children of an almighty God, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Moses that brought us this far. He's brought us this far and he's taken us this far. And bless God, he has. But we can't go down there. They'll whoop us. Think about that. But we do that right here today. We do that right here today. We we can we can bust you in. We can tell you about Jesus, and we can uh, help you grow, and we can <clears throat> uh, give you a hot dog on Wednesday nights. We can do this, but all right, we got to disciple them. We got to go talk with their parents. We got to visit. We got to help them become more active in the church. No, there's no sense in fighting that battle. Huh. Do we realize that God saves them by His grace? The hardest battle of all has already been won. Do we realize that? But they played with power. They undersold the power. And then when that next generation looked at them said, they have no power, they played politics, they played with power, and they played with pagans. There were those in Israel who thought those pagan religious people were harmless. Now, that foolish stuff that they believe in, it's harmless. I tell the teenagers all the time, sometimes we think we can look out into those sins and those temptations and think, I got this. I can handle this. The people of Israel looked at those people that inhabited that land and the bugs and beetles and cats and dogs they were worshiping and said, ah, we would never stoop to that level. Yet how many times does Satan get to post a picture of his testimony on how he wrecked the life of a young youth pastor? Or how he wrecked the life of a Christian school teacher? Or how he wrecked the life of a mama? Or how he wrecked the life of a daddy? Or how he tore up home all to pieces simply because there was a mama there or a daddy there or a child there that thought they could play with the pagans that thought they could play with those foolish ideologies. And then before you know it, you can't even talk to your daughter anymore. You can't even talk to your teenager anymore. They've been so engrossed. They've been so sold out to whatever it is they've been playing with. You can't talk to your husband anymore. You can't talk to your wife because they've been so engrossed with playing with whatever that ideology is. How in the world could that next generation be wiped off the scene and not know God because there was a church more concerned. There was a a children of Israel. There was a country. There was a nation more concerned with playing instead of purging. Number one. Number two, gathering instead of growing. Look at verse number nine with me. The Bible says in chapter two, back in chapter two, verse number nine, And they buried him, Joshua's funeral, in the border of his inheritance in Timnath-eris, in the mount of Ephraim on the north side of the hill, Gaash. And also that generation were gathered unto their fathers. Here we have... The people of Israel, the patriarchs, the dads, the leaders, the soldiers, the ones responsible for the spiritual condition of Israel, they're all there attending Joshua's funeral. They're all there gathered in one place and one accord. And you'd think that having all these mighty men, having all these mighty soldiers, having all these men that witnessed the greatness and the glory of the God they were following would leave that funeral, would leave that place where Joshua was... Buried and leave Joshua's funeral with a power, with an unction, with a desire to go back to their homes and be a leader and go back to their neighborhoods and their villages and be leaders and and tell them about the things of God. But very next words were a comma and the next generation knew not the Lord. How could this happen? Because they were more focused on the gathering. Look at this. Instead of the going. They were more focused on coming to the funeral. They were more focused on looking back at everything that Joshua had done. And they weren't focused on looking forward at everything that needed to be done. You see, this comma here happened because they were playing instead of purging, but because they were gathering instead of growing. What do we gather today? Number one, we gather explanations. Rather than searching for the truth in God on their own, they wanted to be spoon-fed. Because when they were all there at Joshua's funeral, And they were all arm in arm as the mighty men of God. They had it. But when they left that place and they went back to their house, y'all listen to me, dads, granddads. I'm just as guilty of this as every single one of us. When they left that gathering place and they went back to their living room, they didn't know what to do. The only place they could get close to God, the only place that they could have a testimony to be used of God was when they were back gathered up with the other men. And when it came time to go, And when it came time to grow and when it came time to lead, none of them were able to do it. Why? Because they had been so used to being spoon-fed. They would time and time again, you go back and you look at Israel's history. Every time something needed to be done, Joshua, what would you have us to do? Joshua, what would you have us to do? And then later on, and it continued on long after the book of Judges, Samuel, what would you have us to do? Saul, what would you have us to do? David, what would you have us to do? There was a group of men in Israel that came to the place where they had been so spoon-fed for so long and they had been so uh, watered down for so long So long that they forgot how to feed themselves. How does this happen? We're going to use Andrew this morning because he's sitting on the front row. He's brave. All right. The rest of these teenage boys said, oh, Brother Bryce is preaching. They all got up and they went back there. All right. So uh, Brother Andrew, he's a we're going to pretend he's a dad. He's a father. He's a granddad. He's got influence on some people. And buddy, I mean, Andrew's here every Sunday morning, every Sunday night. And he's here every Wednesday night. And he's got his Bible. He's got different color highlighters. He's got different color pens. He takes notes. He remembers what the preacher said. And he gets spoon-fed, 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 spoon-fed. And he's here every week. And I keep feeding him. And the preacher keeps giving him knowledge. And if he sits under Brother Dan's preaching, his brain will just go like this and just get bigger and bigger and bigger. I, I love Brother Dan's preaching. It goes so deep. And it- it's hard to follow sometimes, I'll be honest. But when I catch up with him, I'm like, oh! Oh! That's what he's talking about. And Andrew sits under Brother Dan and Andrew sits under Brother Bryce and he learns and he grows and he's spoon-fed, spoon-fed, spoon-fed. But then Andrew goes home and he sits down at the table uh, with his his kids or with his grandkids and they say, "Uh, Grandpa Andrew or Dad Andrew, could you teach us about this or could you teach us about that? And Andrew goes, oh yeah. Where's the preacher? Because we sit and after a short time, We get so used to being spoon-fed that we forget how to feed ourselves. And then we forget how to feed others and tell others. Because of our sin and our flesh, what ends up happening is we kind of grow into that pew. And the only time we focus on Jesus, the only time we focus on His Word is when somebody's there to just give it to us, isn't it? Well, I, you know, I would do this, I, I, but I, I just don't feel comfortable. I, I, I don't know how. Is it because you've been spoon-fed for so long you don't know how to feed yourself anymore? Be honest. I, I got hit over the head with this because there's times when I want to study something, I want to learn about something in God's Word. I don't even know where to start. I don't even know where to begin. And i got to pick up the phone, and i got to call the preacher, i got to call my grandpa, i got to call my dad, and, and, I, and I absolutely love being able to do that, and they love to be able to pour into me. But at the same time, there's a level of purse accountability for us men that has to be there. We have to be willing to learn on our own. Did you realize Christians grew, Christians told, and Christians preached long before there were ever four walls and a steeple and a preacher to tell them what to do? You know that? Christians went, Christians sow, Christians grow, Christians witnessed, Christians preached, Christians taught long before there was ever a 14-step book on discipleship to tell them how to do it. You know why? Because they were personally invested with the big preacher. They were personally invested with the true Father. They were personally invested with the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the uh, the author of all salvation and the author of all truth. And the one who was before the foundation of the world, He was. And the one that'll be... They had a personal relationship. Sure, they love coming to the table on Sunday mornings and eating it up. Sure, they love sitting under that good Holy Ghost preaching. Sure, they love hearing the Word of God open and expounded. But when it came right down to it, they didn't need a preacher to tell them how good God was. They knew how good God was. They didn't need a preacher to to tell them where Jesus found them. They knew where Jesus found them. They didn't need a preacher to help them tell their kids just how amazing Jesus was. They would do that all on their own. There was a personal responsibility to not just gather explanations, not just gather the truth, not just gather the milk and the honey and the meat and the taters from the Word of God, but to be able to feed it, be able to disperse it, be able to tell other people about it because they had a personal priority in their life to dive into it. They gathered instead of grew. They gathered explanations gathered explanations. Y'all knew it was coming. They gathered excuses. They gathered excuses. Always, always having a reason to tell God no. Some of y'all do that like I do. You know what God's going to ask you to do before He asks you to do it. And you've already got four reasons to tell Him no. I do it. You spend your whole prayer time thinking of stuff to tell God why you can't do something. God, I'm young. God, I'm old. God, I'm, I'm this. I'm that. Nobody will listen to me. Nobody likes me. And then here we go. We start playing the little violin and telling our own little pity party and telling all the reasons why nobody can use me. Moses did it. And if somebody like Moses can do it, don't you think you and I do it? Don't you think these men here at Joshua's funeral did it? Oh, Joshua's gone. What are we going to do now? Oh, the preacher's gone. He's out of town. What are we going to do now? all this all that how I many you know at anchor of hope as a testimony back just a few months ago we didn't know what was going to happen but we had a big preacher didn't we we had a god in our in heaven watching out for us didn't we even though we may not have had a literal preacher we had a preacher that walked away and even though that that may have been the circumstance we didn't have to worry because we still had a king didn't we we still had a lord didn't we we still had somebody looking out for us and if you stood here this time last year as in my shoes which i was because I walk in them every day. And I looked out to a crowd that didn't know what was going to happen next. I looked out to a crowd that didn't know what was coming around the corner. I looked out to a crowd that they really didn't know what was going to come out of my mouth at the next moment. But they knew that there was a God in heaven who had every single bit of it in their hands. And they didn't have to make excuses. I learned this from a physical trainer in the fitness industry. I know you can't tell that, but she, she, she taught it like this. Instead of making excuses why you can't work out, Make excuses while you can. Instead of having reasons to tell God no, start reminding yourself of those reasons to tell God yes. He didn't take a day off. He didn't make excuses. He didn't tell you no. He told you yes. Make an excuse, Dad. What's what's an excuse to tell God yes? I'm going to take my family to church every Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night because my excuse to do that is is I want them to have a priority to see where the, the house of God is in the priority list. Amen? Some of y'all sleeping on me. Wake up now. Mama, I'm going to make an excuse to tell my babies about Jesus and pray about Jesus because to pray for them that they find Jesus one day because if their mamas ain't praying for them, who else With Somebody say amen. What's your excuse for praying for your babies? Well, because if I don't, nobody else will. That's a good enough one for me. It's a good enough one for God. Start making excuses to say yes instead of excuses to say no. How could this next generation not have a clue about the things of God because they were gathering exploitations rather than searching for ways to work and do for God. Here it is. They were searching for ways God could do for them. I'm looking for a church that'll just be a blessing to me. Don't get quiet. That's okay. I'm looking for a church that just has something for me. I'm looking for a preacher that just has something for me. I'm looking for somebody that will just notice me, shake my hand. I'm looking for somebody to just help me feed my ego. I'm looking to go to a place and to worship at a place where it's all about me. What the children of Israel did. And their whole next generation went to the toilet because they had a generation of leadership that it was all about them. God, where are you going to take us next? God, what land are you going to give us next? God, what are you going to do? I want that mountain. I want that hill. I want that valley. I want that village. I want that well. I want that farm. I want that house. I want this. I want that. I want this. I want that. It's all about me. God, I just, I love coming to church, but nobody ever notices me. Nobody ever talks. God, don't you realize this whole thing's about me? I believe that's when God really gets to laughing. It's all about Him. It's all about Him. And the moment you say, well, preacher, but it's all about Him. Well, preacher, they didn't even know. It's all about Him. Well, preacher, I got mad because it's all about Him. Well, preacher, I don't know where I'm going to go because nobody has this for me. It's all about Him. You get to focusing on what you can do for God instead of what God can do for you. The rest of it will take care of itself. You'll be so busy working for the Lord. You'll be so busy in joy and admonition of the Lord. You won't care what anybody else is doing. I've been given a gift from heaven this week. Some of y'all didn't know. It came straight from heaven. Like it was literally in the airwaves. Something's going on with the Verizon cell towers. And I have not got a call or text all week long. It's been great. It's been amazing. People are like, I've been calling you. I've, I've, been leaving. I've been and God bless them. And I will handle anything what they, what they need or what they, what they want, whatever it is. But it's been nice just to, nobody needs me. Nobody needs me. But you know what? No matter what the cell towers are doing, no matter what Verizon's doing, God's still going, you need to be doing this. You need to be doing that. I love you despite this. Yeah, son, you messed this up. Let me slap you around a little bit. You you need to act better there. You need to treat your wife a little better. You need to be a better dad of your kid. He's building me. He's growing me. He's teaching me. Regardless of what the cell towers are doing, regardless of what Washington's doing, regardless of what the church down the street's doing, regardless of what the girlfriends are doing or the boyfriends are doing or fill in the blank there, regardless of what the social status is, instead of trying to gather every excuse, exploitation of what God can do for me and what God should give me and what God should bless me with, only thing I've got to had to focus on all week is what I can do for a holy and right just God. And then it hit me. It should be like that every week, regardless if my cell phone's working or not. Shouldn't it? Playing instead of purging. Gathering instead of growing. Ignoring instead of instilling. Look at verse 10. And also that generation were gathered unto their fathers, and there arose another generation after them, which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. Verse 11, And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and served Balaam. Verse 12, Could it get any worse? And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt, and followed other gods, of the gods of the people that were round about them, and bowed themselves unto them, and provoked the Lord to anger. Now we have a generation that the Lord is literally angry with. We would all admit he looks at the United States of America and he's not very happy, is he? But we have the benefit of living under the dispensation of grace where he's holding it back. He's holding it back as long as his will allows. And the judgment of God will fall on this nation and on this world. But until then, we live in a space of grace We live in a space of grace that allows us to do some things. Number one, instill the power of God. Instill the power of God. When you look to a young person, whether they're sitting here in Sunday morning service or you see them working behind the counter at the gas station or you see them in the drive-thru at McDonald's or you see them, uh, (coughs) they show up one day and they say, hello, I'm 19 and I'm your boss. You know, Whatever the case may be, you see that young person, instill in them. Don't ignore them. Instill what? Instill the power of God. All the things that he has done, all the times he has come through, and all the enemies and trials he's defeated. I got to have an interesting conversation this week. Um, the tragedy there in Israel has kind of sparked some different conversations. And uh, I had a man that's very historically knowledgeable. He knows a lot about the global condition. He's he's all the time researching and studying. And um, you know, he just kind of got fired up. And he said, you know, uh, <coughs> Israel just keeps making everybody mad. Israel this, Israel that. And I said, well, hold on a second. I said, How much land does Israel have? And he named off the actual square mileage, because I mean he's a very intellectual person. And I said, How big is that? He said, Oh, it's just a little tiny piece of land. And I said, Well, how much land does Iran and Egypt and uh fill in the blank Russia and all? I said, How by comparison, how much bigger they are than you know, than Israel? And he said, Well, uh, a lot bigger. And I said, Well, how about all the nations and, and empires that have tried to kill Israel in the past? How big was Babylon? Oh, it was huge. I said, how big was Rome? Oh, it, it you know, had this size and this, and it went from here to here. And, you know, I said, how big was Greece? And, the, you know, at the time of Alexander the Great and all this and all these different generations of people that have tried to wipe that teeny tiny nation off the face of the earth. And I said, well, isn't it amazing that all those world empires have attempted to wipe them off the face of the earth? Yet all those world empires are gone. Yet they're that little tiny nation just remains. He said, you know what? I've never thought about it like that. I said, I know you haven't, but it's okay to be wrong. You know, sometimes you can tell people it's okay to be wrong. But at the end of the day, what I had to tell him was, is the nation of Israel serves a God that's more powerful than Rome. The nation of Israel has a promise and a covenant from God that is more powerful than Iran is more powerful than Egypt, is more powerful than the Palestinians, is more powerful than any group or uh, organization like the UN or the, fill in the blank there, the EU or whatever, and then one day the United States will turn their back is more powerful than the United States. The covenant God has with His people Israel, no matter how tiny the land has, no matter how tiny the, uh, the area they occupy is, no matter how weak they may appear, you mess with Israel, you will lose. It's going to get good. Do you know me and you have that same promise? Peter, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You know, after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, how many times people have tried to come and destroy the church and have been tried to come and squash out the message of the gospel and have tried to imitate it, emulate it, and take it down a satanic road with false doctrine like certain religions out there. And time and time again, those religions pass off the scene. Those religions fail. Those religions take a left turn or a right turn and go somewhere. But time and time again, the remnant, Christ's church, the body of the local believer that believed Jesus died for him, was buried and rose again, and His blood washes away their sins, they're still here. Are they? Are they still here? Say amen. If they're still here, then God's Word is true. Because ten times more powerful Empires, organizations, and enemies have come against the local New Testament church, yes, yet here we are. Yet here we are. If we fail to tell the next generation that, we're failing to tell them about just how powerful our God is. I'm going to get to tell them there was a pandemic that happened in 2020, whippersnapper, and they were shutting down churches left and right and nobody could pay their bills. And, but you know what? God was still faithful to His children. God still enabled people to help and to serve and to give. God used that time. He was more powerful than the pandemic. He was more powerful than COVID-19. He was more powerful than the Spanish flu. He was more powerful than uh, the swine flu. He was more powerful than smallpox. He was more powerful than polio. He was more powerful than the black plague, the bubonic plague. He was more powerful than SARS. He was more powerful than fill in the blank of any pestilence that's come against this whole world that has come and has gone, yet the church still stands. If we fail to tell the next generation and instill in them just how powerful God is, the things He's capable of, the things He's already done, the people, of Israel literally watched the Red Sea stand on two sides, and they passed through the middle on dry land, and nobody mentioned, hey grandson, hey son, hey daughter, let me tell you what God did to get us out of Egypt. Let me tell you what God did there at the Red Sea. Let me tell you what God did for me when I came to the edge of those waters, and I couldn't see any other way, and the enemy was coming bearing down on me, and he had my number, and I thought there was nowhere to go, and I thought there was no way, but God made a way. God made a way. He made a way. Let me tell you, young person it may look like it's dark out there it may look like it's wicked out there but let me tell you who the God is we serve let me tell you who died for you on Calvary let me tell you about the power of God instilling power instilling the presence of God Joshua's dead God's still here that's the message there Joshua's dead God's still here that's what they failed to realize oh Joshua's dead let's all go home I just want to dial in on this for a minute. I have all the respect in the world, and I would never disrespect the testimonies of the Billy Grahams and of the Billy Sundays and of the Lee Robertsons and of the great men of God, D.L. Moody's, Spurgeon's. I would never, ever say anything to tarnish their reputation, reputation. But you know what they all have in common? And I mean no disrespect. They're dead. God's still here. We should absolutely honor the testimony and the lives of those men. But what those children of Israel did is they dialed so far in on the past and what had been done by Moses and Aaron and Joshua that they failed to realize what could be done. Those great age men of God that did such great things here in Chattanooga and all over the world, bless them, but they're gone. We're still here. God's still here. Anchor of Hope's still here. We can't come to Anchor of Hope with the attitude of, well, it'll never be like it used to be. If you say it like that, it won't. It won't for you. Because if you are like those children of Israel that just looked back and didn't look forward, it won't be like that for you. But to see a generation as we've seen through COVID, through the masks, Through the vaccines, through all the turmoil and chaos that we've all been through together, whether we liked it or lumped it, believed it or didn't, or whatever side of the fence you sat on, or if you straddled the middle, or if you swung each and every direction, no matter what has happened in the past year, we still have a job to do. And God is still calling a younger generation searching for truth. Because if anybody saw through all the gobbledygook this past year, it was the young people. Because the young people were told, go back to school. Oh, nope, come back out of school. All right, go back to school three days a week. Oh, nope, come back out of school. All right, go back to school four days a week. Oh, nope, come back home. Oh, do online. Oh, go two days a week. Oh, go every other week. Oh, go. And the other the kids, if anybody else in this nation, the kids got to understand, y'all don't have a clue what you're doing. And they didn't have to apologize for saying it because they were the ones tossed left and tossed toss right. And you know what happened? The big education system, that free public education, that free this, that free lunch, that free, came tumbling down and they started going, y'all don't have a clue what you're doing. I'm gonna start searching for some absolute truth. I'm gonna start searching for somebody that knows me and knows what I'm going through. I'm gonna start searching for something that's real. And there, it's happening all over the country. They're finding churches. And they're finding churches that care about them. And they're finding churches that want to invest in them. And they're finding churches that care where they spend eternity. Mama, you love your daughter. You love your son. But do you care where they spend eternity? If you did, you'd tell them that there was a God in heaven who died for them. But it's hard to care where they spend their eternity when you haven't pondered or considered the fact of where you're going to spend your eternity. People, church members, People who came for the first time or invitation realized this morning that the way a generation dies, that the way a generation falls by the wayside is because people like you and people like me fail to instill the promises of God, the power of God, and the presence of God. I'll close with this as Miss Joy and Brother Mike are coming. Nothing grew my faith or built my faith more as a young person than hearing my mom or my dad, and I was blessed to have them, or my grandparents say, If you ever run into this situation, you just pray this and God will do it. And as a young person, I'm, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, whatever you say. And then becoming a dad myself and having to pray some prayers that I I had no way of helping and watching God go, here you go. And watching when I had to be the leader and when I had to pay the bills and when I had to take care of things and I had no way to do it. And I'd pray some big old prayers and God would say, here you go. Nothing has built my faith more than that right there. Than the generation before me caring about what happened to me. Just caring about what happened to me. Caring about where I spent eternity. Caring about if I walk with the Lord on a daily basis and caring about if I was going to be able to tell others how they could know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. I know typically on a Youth Sunday we get a little bit happier, more of a joyous message, but this is what God laid on my heart. Some of us in this room could be guilty of killing the next generation. That's not something God would be very happy with. On an individual basis, as she begins to play, on an individual basis... Some of us just need to be honest with God. Do we play instead of purge? Do we let our kids do some things that we know they ought not be doing? Do we lead by an example that's kind of more playful instead of less, a little bit more holy? Do we gather and focus on these four walls and know more rather than go? Do we gather and only think about spiritual things and teach about spiritual things and hear about spiritual things when we're under this roof? Or do we go and do we grow? And lastly, do we ignore them instead of instilling them? Whether you have kids or grandkids or not.